If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me in it to John's Gospel, chapter 3. As we prepare for our passage this morning, looking at verses 31 and then to the end of the chapter, verse 36. We're in, a, in the middle of a conversation that arose because Jesus and His disciples came to an area where John the Baptist and his disciples were also ministering. And a debate arose between these two parties. We talked last week about this debate and how the followers of John the Baptist were upset some of the notoriety, the fame, the, the um, glamour of teaching the truth of God's Word was diminished in their eyes because people were leaving their party to listen to Jesus. And thankfully, John the Baptist wasn't having any of it, and he gets up and he speaks. You have not listened to what I said. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We talked about it. It is far better to follow, to worship Christ. And then we en ended last week's sermon with this wonderful, wonderful verse, John 3.30. John the Baptist says, He, being Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. And we paused there. And this week as we continue forward, we're going to hear his rationale for that bold statement. And so would you please follow along with me as we continue this argument beginning in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from a heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. This is your word, dear God. We thank you for it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we might receive it this day. For we need your truth from your word to live bold lives in this lost and dying world. We ask these things, we pray now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. What makes Jesus worthy of our elevating Him? Why would John make that statement? He must increase, but I must decrease. And it's really interesting coming from John the Baptist, the one of whom Jesus says, Matthew 11, 11, 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. As far as human beings are concerned, Jesus says this is as good as it gets. And yet that man says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Well, John doesn't want us to wonder why. He doesn't leave us asking that question, how can he say this? For in our text today, which is really one argument, he gives us the answers. And we're going to look at four of those answers this morning. We must elevate Jesus because of where he comes from. We see this in verse 31. We must elevate Jesus because of what he teaches. We see this in verses 32 to 34. We must elevate Jesus because of what he has been given. Verse 35. And then finally, we must elevate Jesus because of what's at stake. Verse 36. So this morning our goal will be to look at these four different reasons why we must follow the instructions in John 3.30. Jesus must increase and we must decrease because of where He came from. Verse 31, let's begin there. And this is one argument. It's important to remember, though I broke it up because I couldn't fit it all in in one Sunday, it's really one conversation. He didn't stop like we did. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease, and then follows that immediately with, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. He who comes from heaven is above all. And here we, we have this comparison. John himself is making the comparison between himself and between Jesus. And he's making some interesting distinctions. One way we can say, or John says here, that Jesus is higher or worth elevation is because he's of heaven. Now there's two ways you can interpret that. One, think of it as a king. Think of a king on their throne. And think, if you will, if you have a movie or something that comes to mind, you're a subject of that king and you come to petition the king. Where is the king usually seated? Upon a dais. They are elevated to show their authority, to show their power, to show all of which is before them. And so you, as the subject, would have to humble yourself to come before that king in his eyes. And you knew you sat in judgment, in a sense, by merely being in that king's presence. So John the Baptist is in some way saying here, he who comes from above is above all. The king sits over his people. And because of this, he deserves our subjection and his elevation. Now, that's not without benefit for the people. Sure, you're humbling yourself before a king, but traditionally, at least when the king was doing his job, you got protection, you got a sense of belonging, you belonged to that kingdom, you were a people of that king, 
you had or supposed to have had resources available to you. And if problems came, you trusted in that king to provide the answers or solutions. And so there is a benefit, but it is a discrepancy between the, the, the level of the king and the subject. So John the Baptist is saying here, Jesus is above us in his kingly authority. We are the earthly. We are the ones who speak in earthly ways. He's the king who speaks in kingly ways. And I find this very important for us to remember in our churches today. I find this important to remember in our lives. Christ is king. We are his people. Another analogy used in scripture is Christ is the groom and we are the church, his bride. We belong to him. I was talking to a fellow minister this week who was lamenting some, some issues going on in his life and in his church. And, and he just he, he said in desperation to me, why is the church not growing and I understood what he was saying, and I, and, I, and, and I understood his plea in his heart. But I had to tell him, dear, dear brother, you, you're looking too narrowly. The church is growing. Look at what the Lord is doing in the Middle East. Look at what the Lord is doing in, in underdeveloped countries. Look at what the Lord is doing in Africa. Look at, at what the Lord is doing around the world. See, it's far too easy, it's, it's far too common for us to get a narrow focus, a narrow view because of our lack of advantage, our vantage point. We're not the king. We don't see over all. We see our lane. We see our understanding. But if we were sitting on the throne and we looked out, we could say, my kingdom is growing. My people are coming. My work is being done. And so often I'm afraid we get discouraged when we don't see things happening, when things don't work out the way that we anticipate or we see something in the world and we're like, God's not present here. Just remember, dear Christians, Christ is above us. He is in authority. He is on the throne. He sees in ways we can't see. A prayer I heard this week is, we are to pray and the Lord is either going to answer yes or He's going to answer that prayer as if we had His knowledge and His vantage point. And what would you rather have happen? The Lord to answer your prayer as yes, as everything you ask, or with His understanding and His knowledge and His ability to provide to give you what you need. We elevate Christ because of where He comes from. He comes from the throne. But there is a sense that we need to acknowledge the literal here as well. Christ came from heaven. He descended from heaven to come to earth, to dwell amongst His people. And that was a humbling act. And John the Baptist recognizes that. Jesus, the creator, the sustainer, the provider of life, came and is standing before me. Remember, John is making this, this, this um, argument with Jesus present. We read, if we look back to verse 13, chapter 3, 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Jesus is unique in his place in that he came from heaven to dwell amongst mankind. John understands his limitations. And in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. John gets his information from God as a prophet. A prophet speaks prophecy on behalf of the one who gives him the prophecy. All prophets in Scripture. Thus says the Lord your God. But notice, if you go through the Gospels and you look at Jesus and you look at His ministry, does He ever at any point go by God's authority, on God's Word, according to God, and then fill in the blank? He does not. What does He do? Be healed. Why? Because He's got all the power and authority He needs from Himself. Because He is God the one who sat in the heavenly throne and sits there now, the one who made this world and all of us, He commands, and it is so. And so the first reason we elevate Him, or He must increase, is because of who He is and where He came from. But it's not just that, it's also what He teaches. That's what we see as our second point. And really, this section can be um, summarized by verse 34. He whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus utters the words of God. Now, I think I've mentioned this before in, in sermons past, but as a preacher, as a herald, I have a certain degree of authority. I'm proclaiming the word of God to you this day. And so far as what I tell you is accurate and in accord with the scriptures, it has a certain level of authority and power that goes with it. However, I often like to throw in quips and comments and the occasional joke. Those are thus say Aaron and not thus say God. And there's a difference. My word carries very little authority and power. God's Word can be trusted because it's from Him. What makes John the Baptist and Jesus different? He whom God has sent, being Jesus, utters the words of God. Verse 32, He, being God, being Christ, bears witness to what He has seen and has heard, yet no one receives His testimony. Why should we listen to Jesus Christ? Why is He an, a, a, um, an accurate figure on topics of life? Because He created it. Think about this. I, I was pondering this this week. For those of you here that might be farmers... I know that um, there's actually a lot of science that goes into farming. I, I find it truly fascinating. 
on crop rotation and soil testing and if you're for or against pesticides and what is uh, organic pesticides that's not going to negatively affect the plants but will also take care of the bugs uh, and certain things I, I spent a great deal of time in college working uh, for Mississippi State Extension Service we had these great big posters about the eradication of the boll weevil and we were very proud of that fact wouldn't it be neat to talk to Jesus about crop rotation you think he might have something to say on that topic but you pilots, isn't it fascinating? I, I mean, flying is almost magical in my opinion. I know you understand the science and the math behind it, at least a little bit in the physics. But wouldn't it be fascinating to sit down with Jesus and, hey Jesus, can you help me understand the, the physics of gravity and uh, how airflow works and, and lift causes planes to rise at a certain weight and a certain speed with velocity thrown in there? Don't you think Jesus could have something to say to that topic? because he's the one that set gravity into motion. We could go on and on in this. In fact, if, if you want a, a kind of a primary discussion uh, from God on this topic, go to the book of Job, Job chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. The, the, the book of Job is a wonderful lesson on this. We get to those chapters in the life of Job and his terrible friends have nagged him. His, his wife has, has um, threatened him, just give up and die. And all of these people have said all of these things and then God speaks. And for four chapters, God says, you get ready. Gird up your loin and address me like a man. You stand ready and I'm going to speak to you. And then for four chapters, God says, where were you when I birthed mountain goats? Where were you when I put a ring in the nose of the Leviathan? You don't even know what that is, but I do. Where were you when I kept the storehouses of snow in heaven? Where were you when I set the mountain peaks? Where were you when I told the sun how to rise? For four chapters, God says, I'm going to show you how little you know. Wouldn't we want to listen to that God? Isn't that God worth listening to? The one who has all knowledge and understands all things. He bears witness to what he has seen, which is everything. And then the sad line he adds in here, John the Baptist says, and yet no one's listening. He is almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, and yet we're ignoring him. And remember who he's critiquing here. He's critiquing his own disciples. <laughs> he's critiquing the people he taught. He's telling them, my own followers, you're not getting it. You're not listening. Why are you over here when you all should be over there? But it's not all bad. There are some who listen. There, there are some who receive His Word. There are some who are believing. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. God is true. Who elevates Christ in their lives because of what He says are marked as people of God. They're set apart. It's, it's John 3.16 all over again. We go right back to that previous verse. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so we are compelled to elevate Christ, not only because of who He is and where He comes from, but because of what He teaches us, which is the truth. And yet there's more reasons. We also must elevate Jesus because of what He's been given. Verse 35. And here we, we get a, a peek, a, a preview into the divine trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we notice that there's a oneness in mission and in vision. God the Father sends the Son to die and rise again, that the people of God might be saved. God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit to dwell within man that he may grow in righteousness and learn right from wrong. There's a beautiful relationship, a unity within the Trinity. Verse 35, out of the expression of love from the Father to the Son, He gave Him all things. Now what does that mean? It means all things. Everything. Jesus has authority over creation. Jesus is ruler and master of the universe. Jesus is the King seated on the throne that we mentioned earlier. Jesus is Lord over your life and over mine. It belongs to Him. It actually makes it quite funny if you go to the temptations of Jesus. When Jesus is tempted out after being in the wilderness fasting, he, Satan takes Him up on the temple and says, Look, bow to Me and I'll give you all of this. He already had it. It already belonged to Jesus. Satan couldn't give something to him. That, that would be like someone breaking into your car while you're in it and saying, hey, you want to buy a car? It's already your car. It belongs to you. Jesus has all things. On the ride in this morning, I was listening. Ethan and I were listening to, to Caleb, and um, they were quoting a, a missionary. I'd never heard of him. Um, his name was Andrew Vanderbilt. Um, he was a missionary during the Cold War. Apparently he was known as God's Smuggler, was, was the name that many people quoted him as. And during the Cold War, this missionary was famous for trying to sneak Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. And he got to a point, I'm risking his life each and every time, that his visas wouldn't materialize. He couldn't get visas into the countries where he was trying to illegally smuggle Bibles. And, and, and Caleb had made the quote, and they called it something funny. I forget what they called it. But it, the quote was effectively this. I could not be in a better place than where I am now because I can do nothing else. All that's left for me to do is sit back and watch God work. How amazing that is. To, to be in such a place, you're convicted of what you're doing is right and is good according to the Lord, and yet you have no power in yourself to do anything else. And so you say, God, you have all things, all things belong to you. If you want it done, make it so. And quite often he did in the life of this missionary. We teach our children, he's got the whole world in his hands. Let me ask you this morning, dear Christian, do we live like it? Do we really believe that? When we feel convinced and convicted that God's calling us in a certain way, that He has a plan for our life, for our family, for our church, do we then go forth because we believe God will provide if this is His will? Or do we let every minor inconvenience or, or roadblock or, or stumbling block hinder us because we're thinking in man's world instead of God's. John the Baptist admits it. Look, I'm not, I'm not God. I'm finite. I'm human. I, I have man's knowledge of man's world. You don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to the one who's all of it. He owns it. It belongs to him. Go over there. 
You can almost see John trying to like shove his disciples as he's arguing with them. Y'all, y'all go on. Because the reality of it is, we must elevate Christ because that's where he belongs. He's already there. In some ways, this is this is kind of like trying to give somebody something they already belong that already belongs to them. We elevate Christ because he's already elevated. <laughs> We're just seeking to align the heavenly reality with our earthly understanding. It all belongs to Him. But then lastly, and and I want to take a moment to consider this, there is much at stake. There is much at stake, and this is a beautiful summation of this entire chapter. We've been on it for many weeks. John the Baptist says for us in conclusion, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Why must we elevate Christ? Because to put Christ as first in our life is to have eternal life. It's to escape the wrath of God that comes with violation of His commandments. Man's heart, man's desire, man's, what man longs more than anything else. And we saw this with Nicodemus, didn't we? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question that plagues all of us. It's the question that every human being seeks to answer in one form or another. But the only answer that will give peace, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you want eternal life? Do you want to flee the wrath of God? Do you think you can? I've got a few people I want you to talk to. Genesis chapter 3. Go go talk to Adam. How good is hiding in bushes and hiding from God? That doesn't work for you? Go to the book of Jonah. I think it's chapter 3. Get in a fish, go to the depths of the ocean, to the bottom of all that is real, so much so that you claim you're in hell itself, in Sheol, and find if you pray if God doesn't answer. You cannot escape God's presence. You cannot escape His wrath. We will all give an account for our lives. We will all answer for that which we have done and not done. So I plead with you, we must elevate Christ. We must make Him first in our lives. We must make Him first in how we live and conduct our businesses and interact with other people. Because eternity is at stake. This is not a minor thing. And you can, you can almost see it in your eyes with John the Baptist pleading with his, with his followers like, you guys, you've got to stop. This has got to stop. I'm not important. He's important. I don't matter. He matters. I'm not significant. He's significant. I'm just telling you, go to Him. That's all I've been doing. That's been what I've been saying. He's here. Go. Follow Him. And by God's providence, and I certainly didn't plan it this way, in a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. The first Sunday of the month, we have communion. And what do we do at the Lord's table but to elevate Jesus Christ? 
It is not by my works that I am found righteous, but his. Not by what I have done that makes me whole and gives me access to God, but by what he has done for me. His blood for my life. His death for my life. And so as we prepare, and in just a moment we come to that table, I want you to think about these points. Why do I elevate Christ? It's because of who He is and where He comes from. It's because of what He teaches. It is good and it is true. It's because He understands what's at stake and desperately wants His people to escape the wrath that will come to those who reject Him and reject His words. May we elevate Christ in our lives. I close with these words. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is so necessary for our lives, and yet it is so hard to do. It is so difficult to make You first in our lives. We are a selfish people, prone to wander, prone to elevate ourselves would you humble us in and through your word? Would you show us again and again our need for you and our inability to do anything that is pleasing to you apart from you working it in us? Lord, I pray for everyone here that they would not know the wrath that awaits those who reject your salvation, but that we would all rejoice as we gather together in heaven because we have been covered by the blood of Christ. We made much of Christ now. And then forever, we continue to worship and celebrate Him. This is my prayer for Your people, O God. I ask You make it so in Christ's name. Amen.